I think it's pretty common knowledge that some of the most important lessons we learn are those lessons that difficult experiences teach us. Some of those experiences could be avoided, I guess, if we listen to our parents or to our friends or to the experiences of strangers. Others, however, just can't be avoided and we're forced into that turbulence and we either emerge from it wiser and stronger or we get stuck inside that chaos. That's what today's episode is about. Today we look back at that turbulence and we explore how some people got out and what they learned and how they've grown. Stay tuned. In our first story, producer Lupe Espinosa talks to Joey, a senior at our school, about the death of his uncle and about the power of music. So um, it, it all started in seventh grade when I was at that low part of my life when I didn't have that many friends. I was a bit skittish. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I was being extremely antisocial. It was just at this point where I, I just felt like I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I was worth much because um, during that time as well, on December 23rd of 2013, I believe, um, I received word that my uncle had passed away. And this was my mom's single only brother and uh, it really hit me hard because the way how she looked, um, it kinda, she kind of looked really defeated at that point. And that was the first time in my life that I ever saw that my mom had a weakness to something. Because when you look at your parents or when you look at your mom or your dad, you expect them to be this superpower that, that nothing can stop them. But at that point when my mom broke down, that's when I felt it really hit to me. And that, at that point, that's when I started crying. Me and my mom wouldn't even talk about it. Because whenever I try to like, whenever she tried to bring it up and say that it was fine, we'd always get into this fight where, or this argument where it was not okay that she was acting that way. Because she didn't even bother, because at the time she didn't even bother to work. She was a stay-at-home mom. And to see you there alone, knowing that her brother is gone, it really affected me because I was supposed to be there for her, but I couldn't because I didn't know what to do because I was broken at the same time. And um, while, while I was there, there were times when I was just thinking, maybe I should just give up. Did your mom and her brother have a close relationship? Because the, um, that my mom's brother was her only brother, yeah, they had extremely close relationship. He was the one that would watch over me and my sister when we were younger, but that was back in the Philippines. And that was the most heartbreaking part was because we couldn't visit him to even see his funeral um, because he was still in the Philippines and we didn't have the money to go back. So we, we were just there looking at the same Facebook post that my mom's sister had posted saying that our uncle had died. Not only did he now have to cope with the terrible loss of his uncle, he now had to bear the fact that he wasn't going to be able to travel and see his uncle for the last time and bid his farewells. So you did have like a close relationship with him? Yeah. Can um, you elaborate more on it? Uh, one of the best things that I remember about my uncle was that he always used to play guitar. And that was um, when I started playing, I was like around 8, 10 years old. Um, he would Skype me, and then I would t I would start taking lessons from him. But I always kept it in a very discreet way, 
now that I know that he was gone, I, I didn't have any intention that I would actually play guitar ever again because of what happened to him. How did he die if that's okay to ask? So my uncle was a lawyer. Um, he worked for a private person who needed his defense, so, and he was paying big money for it. Um, the, because in the Philippines that there is a huge drug trade within, within the Philippines that's going on, uh, my uncle was going against two uh, gang members of... We're, we're still not sure of which gang that these two members were a part of. But after um, the whole entire trial happened, it turned out that my uncle had won the case and that uh, the other two men were being issued for about three or four years of jail time. And about two days after the case had ended, my uncle was found shot six times in the back twice in the chest. He was going home to see his, uh, his son and his wife. And it was at that point when I was, uh, when I was given that news, I was, I was devastated. I kept thinking to myself that if this is what life really is like, then what's the point of living it, you know? Because we, we keep looking at ourselves that, oh, life is just something that we can all get through it. But when you look at that kind of situation, you kind of have to second-guess yourself as to what you're exactly doing here. Yeah. So soon after that is... I lost it. So then, you did mention earlier that he did teach you how to play guitar? He did. After he died, was it hard for you to play guitar? Was the object the only thing that you connected to after his passing? Like, after he passed away... Um, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't have any passion even touch the guitar at all at that point but around one year later because throughout those times when he was when he was dead and they were still looking for the people who killed him they still haven't found him I kept praying and I, I kept asking why <laughs> why do you have to go yeah but the kind of person that he was is that he was a person that doesn't easily give up on anything and it kind of pushed me to think about what he has done with his life, whether or not it was it was how tragic he died, how tragic the loss, he was still able to cope up and do what he needed to do. And that's what pushed me to like start playing again. Because if he was still here alive, he wouldn't want me to just give up on playing yeah. just because of his death. And it made me think a lot about what else I can do with my life instead of just trying to just focus on Unlike school and all that, like I, I try to do something, you know, be more productive. When people go through pain, they try to find their own coping mechanisms. Joey turned to music for it to not only bring back memories, it also helped reduce the emotional stress he endured at the passing of his uncle. Music can be a powerful and emotional tool for those going through hard times, just as painting, reading, or going on an afternoon walk can. So the guitar is what connects you to your uncle? It does. And like a lot of people like explain, like, oh, why do you keep playing sad songs? Yeah. And it's like, that's the reason. Because whenever I play a sad song, that's actually one of my um, uncle's favorite kinds of music, is sad because he can relate to it so well. Whenever I play a sad song, it reminds me a lot of him. It's like almost he's just there watching me. My uncle was, he was a person that worked hard his whole life and within just two days, a couple bullets, he was gone. 
you expect to feel like, oh, it's fine, like you'll get over it, but you don't. Because to this day, they haven't found the people who killed him yet. And I'm still waiting for that time to come. But until then, I'm just here, hoping that things will change for the better. Our second story comes from producer Elizabeth Rosa. She interviews Angelica, and together they explore what it takes to find courage and conviction. As people get older, they start to learn more about themselves. They learn what makes them the person that they are today. For Angelica, that thing was having a voice to defend herself. Getting pushed around by people helped her realize how capable she is to stand up for herself. And her parents were only the beginning of this journey. The way I act with my parents, it's not necessarily bad, but it's like sometimes I do feel bad. I used to let them scream at me or like let them hit me or something like that. But like as I grew older, I stopped being like scared of them and I didn't like it anymore. So I started standing up for myself. I think it was at the age of 14. What did your parents do exactly? to make you feel bad. From my mom, she would always put me down, like saying that I was dumb, I wasn't, why can't I be like my sister, or why can't I be like others, or why can't I be like my cousin, like they have straight A's, they're smart. And my dad, my dad wouldn't necessarily tell me anything, but like at points when I was like small, like he would hit me, or he would like, yeah, he wouldn't say anything. Whenever you stand up to your parents, like, what, how do they react to that? Well, my mom doesn't say anything anymore. Like, she doesn't tell me much. But when she does, she's like, oh, I'm going to hit you. If you keep on doing this, I'm going to hit you. I'm like, mom, actions, not words. Like, I want you to do it. If you're going to say something, then you might as well just do it. Like, don't just keep on saying you're going to hit me, you're going to hit me, you're going to do that. I'm just like, do it. Like, I'm right here. I'm standing. I'm not going to stop you. Like, but just know that there's consequences on you touching me or like hitting me. Same goes for my dad too. I tell him that. Or like I tell him, like you have no right to like tell me anything of what I'm doing because you're not even home. It's like I don't even have a dad anymore because you're you're hardly ever home. So you got no rights to tell me what to do. You gotta know that there's people who who would like who are gonna help you. It doesn't I mean it's scary at a point because you're like, oh, they're gonna take you away from your family or you're you're not never gonna see your sisters or your brothers or they're gonna take like away your siblings and separate you guys or I don't know but like you know there has to be a point where you have to like stop your parents from doing like something that you don't like or taking control over you. So is it really that bad at home or is it just like a regular Hispanic family you know how like all parents hit you? (laughs) I think it's like a Hispanic tradition thing. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't go like beyond far it's just I get really mad easily and Mm -hmm. Like, they know it, but they still have the nerve to, like, push my button. Does the way that you you defend yourself from your parents reflect how you act in school or anywhere else? I mean, it's not really different. If you are capable of standing up up in front of your parents, then I think you can, like, stand up towards anybody else. So is there an example of, like, you standing up to someone besides your parents? Well, there's this one girl... Uh, where where she um she would like get mad at me easily, right? Or like I wouldn't do anything, or like she'll make it seem like I did, but I didn't, and I want to know why. 
And when I tried to ask her, at that time I was like, oh, I'm so scared. Like, oh my God, what did I do wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But, at, um, like, she would ignore me, she would get mad. And there was a point where I got really, 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 like, tired of kissing ass or, like, doing this, right? But um, I finally, like, managed to tell her, like, stop her, like, telling her, um, like, what's wrong with you? Or, what did I do wrong? Like, you're not going to go away. You're not going to walk away from me like I want to know. And to be honest, I did cry, right? Mm-hmm. I did cry in her face, which made me look, we can say weak or I don't know. But, uh, I mean, you have to, like, stand up for yourself. And I think this happened twice. But the second time, I didn't let it happen, like, go beyond where she would, like, tell me, like, stuff that would make me feel bad. I would be like, no, you're, like, you're not, I'm not, like, the same girl that you used to. We can say, put down, if you're going to do this, then, like, I'm not going to kiss ass anymore. But, like, yeah, and uh, I don't know, I guess that helped a lot. And now, I mean, I know I get, like, comments like, oh, you look scary or you have that face where, like, you can beat someone up, but the inside I'm like nope I was that type of person who would look like well I would be easily picked on and I just got tired of that I was a person who would get picked on a lot or like easily but now it's like I can say like if if something is like happening to me or like someone is like putting me down I'd be like no like you know what like you you are messing with the wrong person like you don't know who I am like you don't you have no rights because you're not living what I'm living or what I'm going through but I see a lot difference than when I was small I say it went from weak to strong so what would you tell your younger self I tell my my little me (laughs) I'd be like you can be beautiful you can be wonderful you can be anything you want you just have to not get scared everyone is different be yourself and if others are like putting you down it's because they can't be themselves like they they're trying to like get something from you or trying to be like you but just be unique in general our third story is about yami a senior at our school and about the lessons she learned after her first encounter with death hello there frankie here And in today's segment, we explore what it is like to lose a family member and how we grieve and deal with it. Yami, a senior at LASA, is planning to continue her educational career at Cal State Dominguez Hills and wants to study to become a nurse. But senior year has been a stressful one for Yami, not only because of the college application process and working on the senior defense, but last summer, her grandmother died in Mexico. The woman who was a big part in nurturing Yami before she immigrated to the United States at the age of two was gone. This tragic experience that constantly gets brought up to Yami is a difficult one to handle. So we start off talking about the relationship she had with her grandmother. Tell me about your grandma. What side is she from? Is she from your mom's side? Yeah, she's from my mom's side. And did she raise you? Uh, No, because when I was two, I had to leave her. Leave her? Yeah, like... I left Mexico. She took care of you? Yeah, she did from, like, when I was a newborn till, like, well, I was, like, two. Yeah, spent almost, like, 13 like, years. Yeah, like, 14. Mm-hmm. And you went back to Mexico? Mm-hmm. And how was it seeing her? It was emotional. I didn't know what to expect because I didn't really remember her. Then as time went on, how did you feel? 
I mean, I felt like I was home. I felt so welcome to be with her because I hadn't seen her in so long. We got like really close because she would always just like be telling me like stories about like what my mom would do or like what I would do when I was younger and stuff. And how did that make you feel? It made me feel like happy because like for her to be telling me all of that, but um, it made me feel kind of like I hadn't like spent enough time with her as well. Did you see her a time after that? Yeah, when I went to the hospital. She was in the hospital for like a month and a half, but I was only able to be there with her for like three weeks. Basically, you remember seeing her twice in your life, right? First time in Mexico and this second time in the hospital. And how was it seeing her the second time? Like a week, slowly fading. Mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? Very sad, because like my plan was that I wanted to bring her here. But, I mean, obviously that wasn't able to, like, happen. Tell me about the first time that you saw her when you went to the hospital. She looked strong. Very strong. She seemed so healthy to me. Like, I felt like I could just, like, take her home. But, like, I couldn't, obviously. And um, once I got there, they had, like, a bag over her stomach. Because, like, she was open. And I just, like, that's the only thing that, like, kept reminding me. Like, no, she has to stay here, you know. Like, she's not okay. She looked fine to me. But she really wasn't. Yami had explained to me before that her grandmother was only 66 years old when she had passed away. She told me that her death was a complete surprise to her and her family because she usually never got sick. When Yami had heard that her grandmother was in the hospital, the idea of her dying never crossed Yami's mind. It was never alarming to her. Finding out that she had passed away broke Yami. Tell me about the time that you heard that your grandma passed away. We knew what was going on. Like, we saw that she was, like, fading away slowly. So we wanted, like, more people to come in and, like, see her. But, like, they wouldn't let us. So then um, that day, it was, she passed away, like, around, like, 12. It was, like, so not time for, like, visiting hours. But um, she kept, like, her lungs were, like, weren't responding to her. Like, my mom knew, like, something was going to happen. When I found out, I was, like, the third one to go in and see her and when I went in she was already like covered you know I uncovered her and like I was able to like go in and then I just started crying like I mean that's like the first thing that I did like I just went to her and I hugged her and I started crying I was heartbroken like I thought she was actually gonna make it yeah so like the rest of the time you were in Mexico how did you feel like I was missing something like something was incomplete like I just felt like I wanted to, like, go see her, you know? I just really missed her. Like, I just wanted to see her, but I couldn't. Do you remember the last words you told your grandma? I remember that the last couple times that me and her, like, were, like, together. Like, we were, like, talking. I don't know, like, she would just always be so caring. She would always tell me, like, well, like, go home, like, go sleep, go get some food or something. Like, she would always worry about me. Like, she wouldn't worry about herself. She would worry about me. She thought about others more than herself? Yeah. How did that make you feel that she was selfless? While she was in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, it just showed me how much she cared about all of us. Like, how much she cared about me and my cousins and my mom. And, yeah. Amongst all women, this behavior is common. They put everyone's needs before theirs. They will give you their plate of food, although they haven't ate all day. They will take you to your early soccer practice, although they only got four hours of sleep that night. They will go through thick and thin just to make sure their family is okay. Women around the world live most of their lives not thinking about themselves. It's either their parents, their partners, or their friends that's on their mind. And although Yami's grandmother was sick, she was still selfless. 
wanting to meet the needs of her granddaughter while in a hospital bed. And this trait that her grandmother has, Yami doesn't know it yet, but it has been passed down to her. It's almost as if her grandmother is living within her. That's why Yami's innate instinct is to help others. That's part of the reason why she wants to be a nurse. Do you think that there's like a correlation between you wanting to be a nurse and your grandma? In a way, yeah, there is. When I was there with my grandma, um, all the nurses were very, very kind to me. Like, They would see that I wouldn't sleep. I would probably sleep for like one or two hours every day. And in the back of my head, it was always like, my grandma, is she okay? Like, we're, like you know, what's going on with her right now? And those nurses were always really, really nice. Like, they would open up an empty room, and they would let me go in there and sleep. Or, like, they would go that extra mile to make sure that my grandma was okay. Like, throughout the day, like, if anything, she needed anything, they would, like, help her out. And I guess, yeah, like, I know what it's like to be receiving that help. The family will always need that, like, extra, like, support, you know, like, like, regardless what it is, like, whether it's, like, oh, like, I hope that your family member feels better sometime. Like, even just something like that, like... It's it's something that helps, you know? You have these, like, three moments in your life where you remember seeing her, and so you see her, like, happy with your family on Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the next time you see her is in the hospital bed. Right. And then the time after is in a casket. Mm-hmm. And so what does that do to you? I mean, it just shows me that I should, like, cherish people, like, every day. Before your grandma died, um, has anyone else in your family died? No. What did you think about death? before your grandma died? I didn't really think much of it. Like, it was just, like, something that, like, would always happen, you know? What did you think after? Now, I'm just like, oh, man, like, it's something that's really, really hard for, like, all family members. Like, regardless if, like, they spend time with her or not, it's really something that's really hard to, like, go through. As a family, I feel that us being united is something, like, that's very necessary. It makes it, like, a bit easier. It's, like, difficult to talk about someone who died mm-hmm. but also someone who like you love yeah what do you do to like not cry sometimes it's just good to cry it out you know it did help me because like in school like i would cry but i would like try to keep it in because i don't want to keep crying right but once i got home and like i was with my mom i just cried it all out and i felt better like i don't know why but i feel better so that's what i'm saying sometimes crying makes you feel better now that I know, like, what it's like to lose somebody, like, it just makes me, like, value everybody so much more. It's always going to be something that I'm always going to be able to think about, and, like, that's something that's just always, a thought that's always going to be there, you know? According to PR Newswire, one in seven Americans lose a family member by the age of 20. This means that Yami isn't alone. And what's important to note is the traumatic experiences that you have as a child will continue to linger in your mind as you become an adult. Therefore, coping mechanisms are important. Everyone who has experienced death does something to help them grieve. But sometimes, they are not always good or healthy ways. Some people isolate themselves from the world. Others tend to have that constant cloud of depression over them, while some turn to drugs to numb the pain of their loss. That's why it is essential, especially for us teens, to speak about the ways things make us feel. Although it isn't easy at times, It's the only healthy way we will ever fill the void of our lost loved ones. Our final story by our producer Tabina Matab is one of redemption. 
It's about finding a new purpose, a new role in life after being in the grips of gang life. Hey everyone, it's Tabina. Today I have a story about a gentleman who grew up in the Crenshaw district where majority were black and talks about being a part of a gang at the age of 11. He has been sent to jail constantly since the age of 12. By the age of 18, he had 21 convictions and became a double striker. A double striker is an individual who made two felony convictions and they needed one more to be mandatory sentence of 25 to life. I personally don't know anything about gangs and how people join. I've never met anyone who's in a gang or has been in jail for multiple crimes. This gentleman is now 34 and considered to be one of the big homies in his neighborhood, in a street term known as shot callers. A shot caller is an individual who's seen as a high status and tells everyone what's going down. Eight years ago was his last time in jail for seven counts of bank robberies, kidnapping, having a concealed weapon, discharging a firearm, and a high-speed pursuit. He took a deal for no contest and he was incarcerated for seven years with 80%. This means he had to do only 80% of those seven years if he is well-behaved. Since then, he has stepped away from the streets to change his way of living, motivated by his son. For the protection of his identity, we will call him John Doe. Uh, I joined a gang at the age of 11 and uh, since I wasn't black, I guess I had to prove my point, get my point across, because the fact I wasn't black, so I thought, you know, I had more to prove. What do you mean by more, more to prove? In the back of my head, I always thought I'd never fit in. So I thought maybe I had to put in extra work just so I could fit in. You know, I was young and, you know, young and dumb. John came from a very educated family. His mother has a master in mathematics and English, while his father has a PhD in mathematics and sociology. He has an older sister who is a biochemist working for WHO, which stands for World Health Organization in Switzerland, and she's one of the lead scientists. His family has always been busy working, so he grew up with his aunt and uncle who were Mexicans, which is where he learned Spanish. He states that his aunt didn't come from a respected family. Growing up, John had always tried to start fights and have the urge to beat up someone. It was entertaining for him due to the lack of guidance. Uh, I My first incur- incarceration was at the age of uh, 12. Uh, I did two years, got out, stayed out three months, went back in, did two more years. I got out, stayed out 26 days, went back in, did 10 months for gang injunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a gang injunction in, back in 19, 1996. A gang injunction is when you are already recognized as a gang member and the court has given you a restraining order to stay away from the group, but you got caught hanging out with them. As a young kid, John had anger issues. Everything would be irritating and little things would piss him off. My parents uh, actually didn't find out till. Um, Till my first juvenile case. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, I was 12 years old, that's when they found out that, you know, rock, uh, you know, that I have been incarcerated. Yeah. And uh, the first thing uh, d- they did, well, I mean, you know, I went in, you know, my first, you know, jail experience was, it was, it was just different. I mean, the first night I cried because I was like, wow, you know, How'd you get yourself in? What, what did I do to get myself in? You know, I missed everybody. Yeah. But then I grew out of it, you know. Well, well uh, my, my, my mom showed up 
two days later, and uh, she came visiting me. They bailed me out, uh, but you know I was still fighting the case. Then I ended up, you know, I ended up found found guilty, and then I ended up doing two years. Those times that you've been in jail, have your family ever tried to stop you, like try to tell you to stop or tell you like? They did. They did not uh, not once, not twice. They have done it multiple times, mm-hmm. and uh, I think by the time they start saying it, I think it was already too late. So I had to learn on my own. John stated that bully is one individual, while a gang is a whole crowd of bullies. He likes being in jail because all of his friends are in there, but at the same time, he liked the outside. So it shocked him a little bit that he had one more strike. When he got out, he went back to school and started to work. But why now? Like, why did it take you all those crimes? But your last one, why was that your last one made you think, like, I need to change? Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I've been to jail. I like being in jail because, you know, most of my friends are here. You know, I, I you know... I could come to jail. I come to jail and I could tell people what to do and they will listen to me. And why is that? Because I was very well known. You know, you know, I was very well known, you know, and I I had I built up enough repetition for them to to listen to to listen to what I have to say and they will do it. It is what it is. And I started working as um, I started working, you know, I started working, I used to catch like four buses and four trains just to get to work in Orange County because I lived in L.A. And at that time I was not driving. So every day I used to take catalogs home because the business that I was, I mean, the, the industry that I was working was, is a, it was a restaurant industry. And this restaurant industry was like, we used to sell equipments for restaurants. And I was just, I was just a personnel who used to like stock stock the shelves but every day i used to take catalogs home because i used to be bored you know people had mp3 player i didn't have that i didn't even have money for mp3 players and then um you know one day uh one of the gm from that company asked me he was like hey you know why don't you work inside so i started working inside then he asked me like hey can you uh, i mean what do you what are you good at i was like well i mean i'm not really good at anything i just speak a bunch of language so they were. They asked me how many languages do you speak. I said I speak seven different languages. So he asked me what are what are the seven different languages you speak. I said well I speak Bengali, I speak Urdu, I speak Hindi, I speak Farsi, you know, I speak Arabic, English, and Spanish. So I was like oh man, you know that's so cool. I mean I used to have the catalogs, all the catalogs, all the equipments memorized in my head. Because I'm a quick learner. I'm a very quick learner. One day, one of the corporate officers came and told John to take an exam. He then went and took the exam. A couple of days later, the result came back and he got 96 out of 100. And the second person got 72. He scored the highest out of 4,000 people. And it was because of all the studying he did reading the catalogs. Next day, he became manager for his store. I asked John, what was going through your mind when you became manager? And he told me this. On the same day, I prayed. I was like, man, thank God. Because when you grow up in the streets, if you, if, you, if you pass the age 21 and you're not killed yet, you're doing something good, you know? Somebody, somebody is looking after, looking after you. Now, you know, I'm very successful. 
you know, I'm a very successful equipment specialist. Not only did he become successful in his career, but his son has been the biggest motivation for him to keep going. John is working hard for himself and his son's future. John wants to give his son more guidance than what he has ever gotten. There's a phrase people say, an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But in John's perspective, an apple does fall far from the tree with enough wind. If John guides his son the right way, his son will make it far in life. He believes that you need to know what you want and you have to want it. If you don't want it, you can never have it. Nobody's going to give it to you. You have to take it. Do you not regret all of those crimes and all of those convictions that you had? Okay, I don't have regrets, but I also do. I don't have regrets because whatever I've been through, mm -hmm. it was a huge experience for me. And the this type of experience that I, I have, uh, it's not a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. And I think that would or that's also a big motivation for me to do good for myself and for my for my son now but i also regret what i have done mm -hmm. i mean i i have uh i have done some pretty bad things and which i'm not too happy about at this moment do you consider yourself um a positive role model at one point in time i mean uh, at one time in my life I was never a positive role model, but now I am because, like I said, I'm very wise now, so I know what I've been through, and I wouldn't expect my friends and family to go through the same thing. Despite all of the crimes John has committed, he is a very passionate man. He had always been focused. That's why he was so good at gangbanging, calling shots from prison, and managing his business. All of these events in his life was a big experience and it made him learn something. To not look back and relive your past, but to keep looking forward because you can't change what you did, but you can change what you do for the future. His father once told him, a smart man learns from others, but a wise man learns from his own mistakes. So what do you consider yourself? At that moment, he couldn't answer his father, but right now, he considered himself a wise man because he learned from his own mistakes and that's what made him the person he is today. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening. Our program today was produced by Lupe Espinosa, Elizabeth Rosa, Frankie Morales, and Tabina Mahtab. Our creative directors for this episode were Annabelle Cho, Haben Lee, Carla Baires, and Breck Hipólito. Our production managers and marketing directors are Luz Cruz, Jonathan Sims, Jason Sims, and Semi Han. I'm executive producer Andres Reconco. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The408 and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Tune in next month for our final episode of this second season of The 408.
Thank you.